good day in the house. Mr. Chip Eston, I've been looking forward to sitting down and visiting you with you for a while, my friend. It's oh. been uh, we met each other several years ago at some uh, different charity events around town, and you yeah, right down at the um, Nissan Stadium was the first one, if I'm if I'm yeah, correct. It's been yeah. several years, so I, I've been excited uh, to sit with you and, and I've watched your career grow over the last several years, and and uh, my wife and I have been. Uh, enjoying Outer Banks for the last uh, few weeks. So we're, we hadn't started season three yet. So that's been, that was, uh, buckle uh, up, buckle up. The, uh, your, that role is so different from anything I've ever seen you in the character of Ward that you're playing in that, in that role. I was really fascinated by it. It was really a much darker character than anything I've ever seen from you before. I think that's what made it so interesting to me. Um, is, it, is it fun to play? I mean, stepping outside of that box like that? Yeah, absolutely. Mostly you just don't want to repeat yourself. Mostly, mostly, you just want a character with many facets. I've, I've been doing this a long, long time, and for a long time when you guest star, you get a couple facets. You get, yeah. like, if especially, like, on a sitcom, like, say you're the, the one of the stars, the new boyfriend on the show. So you start off and you're super polite is one of your facets. Nice, super polite guy. And then another one is you get really angry when people order wrong or their food, you know, the food comes. So you get, like, two little things. You're not really a full human being. So mostly it's getting to play this wide range of things. And Deacon Claiborne was that to a T on Nashville. Yeah. So you play all these facets. And then when you're done, what you're – a little nervous about is a lot of times Hollywood likes to say, all right, you did that. Let's find another one of those. Let's find a, a Deacon Claiborne-esque or Deacon Light kind of thing where you're trying to do a, a pale imitation of what you've already done. Um, I'm so grateful the guys that produce Outer Banks, Josh and Jonas Pate and Shannon Burke, they called me up and they wanted me to, it was, if, if you remember, there's an early mislead where you think maybe I am just a, a nice you know, oh, yeah, southern absolutely. dad kind of a thing. So, um, but they had uh, different things in mind, and uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. I will say that this happens a lot. Years ago, I, I did a small role on a show called L.A. Dragnet that it was a re, uh, I guess a reboot of Dragnet that Ed O'Neill starred in. Oh, yeah. Um, from uh, Married with Children and, of course, uh, Modern Family. Um, and he was so fantastic, and I played a bad guy. It was just a guest starring role, a single episode, and he, he interviewed me. So I think in that moment, those guys were working on that, and all these years later, they remembered that little evil glint in my eye from back then wow. and thought maybe we can fool him with a deacon early on, and then he's got something up his sleeve. So super great. Do you find that uh, that roles come to you from old relationships like that a lot? You know, maybe you uh, stuck in somebody's mind, a casting director years and years ago. Is that pretty common? Well, it's become more common. I think it takes a while to sort of amass that group of people that you've yeah. worked with kind of a thing. For the longest time, I have to be honest, it was like, you want one job to lead to another. You don't want to do a job and do it well, and then you're just starting from scratch again. But you obviously don't want to go from one thing that's just the same, the same, the same. Yeah. I, I remember I read uh, uh, The Green Light by Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. And yeah. he was talking just about breaking out of the rom-com Well, you read it? You read it like an actual book? You held it up and you read the pictures? No, uh, audio book. Audi there we go. Uh, yeah. Why in the world would I, anybody not audio book? I know, and I used to love to read, but my eyes are bad these days. I've had some cataracts and all that crap, so I just uh, audiobooks for the well, that's go. a good reason on its own, but an even better reason is if I, wait, I can read this book with my own 
damn eyeballs, or Matthew McConaughey will read it to me. And that was that was very fascinating too. <laughs> hearing his delivery and, and yeah. that whole thing that was, but that's off the subject. But it's it's. Oh, I, I loved I, it. Green I, light. You know, Green I'm light. just I'm fascinated by uh, by the way actors approach roles. Tim and I, McGraw and I've sat and talked about some of this. We had lunch the other day and we talked about a lot of his character with 1883 from Yellowstone and stuff, and just how all that stuff happened. You know, it's uh, it's quite a long journey. I mean, you've been, you've been acting for how many years? Wow, it's I, I I started acting right about when you came to Nashville. I think. I, I, Were you still playing music at the same time too? Because you're well, an avid musician too. Yeah, I started off in music, and and to the point where in college I was in a band and the lead singer and songwriter and uh, for a band and did that for about five years, which showed you how long I was in college. <laughs> and uh, and when that finished up. Those guys, my band, who I loved dearly and still do, um, they went on to become, as, as the song says, doctors and lawyers and stuff. <laughs> um, and honestly, I've often thought about, you talk about the road not taken. I had some friends that had gone out to L.A. and were making a little life of it. We're starting to book some really good roles. Um, yeah. One of them was a friend named Dermot Mulroney, and he was out there on that sh uh, movie Young Guns. Remember Young Guns? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and and... Uh, you know, it made it sort of a reality, a possibility to look at that and go, well, I know those guys. We we kind of grew up the same way, and if they're making a, a run at it, maybe maybe I could too. I swear to you, there's a part of me that goes, if they had gone to Nashville and into music, I would have gone, well, I know those guys. Maybe I can go to Nashville and make a run of it. There's there's definitely a road not taken where I would have come here first, and it would have made more sense. I had been I hadn't studied acting at all, but I'd been playing music live on stages, yeah, for a while, yeah. So that was the odd choice, but I think um, uh, in the end, uh, God got me where I was meant to be. I think that's the way it always happens, though. You know, whatever windows are supposed to open or doors, you know, crack, close behind you, whatever. I think you kind of fall into where you're supposed to be. I sometimes, will sometimes in spite of yourself. I'll tell you something <laughs> else is that um, uh, I have a single out right now called One Good Move that's re really about the fact that I didn't make a lot of good decisions back in those days. Right at that point, right before I met. The woman who is now my wife of 31 years, Patty, is my wife. Yeah. And she, I was telling somebody back then, she was my one good move. And, and they went, hey, that's your title. And usually I'm the one that hears titles, you know, but um, they heard it, so we wrote it. But my point is, I remember thinking this, if I'm going to be honest, that I could go for a musical career right now, but I, I knew what that would entail about getting on tour buses and, and going and going and going, just hitting the road like that. And I honestly looked and thought, I'm not sure I could hang on to her if I did that. I'm not, not that she wouldn't wait, but maybe I wouldn't wait. Maybe I, I don't know if I could handle it at that age, just being out on the road for most of the year away from her. And I, I, but also she should, I don't know. I just wanted something maybe slightly more stable, like acting. I don't even know. No, I mean, I mean, which is funny, but compared to music in that situation, Acting, you know, we had a place together, and I would go do auditions in L.A., and I was home and all the time, and we got to be together. Um, I, so uh, that was part of it. And yet, you know, all these years later, here she is right by my side helping we, me with my music career. So, again. you got to have that person beside you, man. Yeah, it means everything. One good move, yeah. Yes, it does. How's the, the casting? Uh, I, I did a couple of... Uh, of uh, casting calls where I did auditions and stuff. They were not pleasant experiences for me. 
I, I had some really people that were really nasty to me, and I mean, just in the last four or five years. Really? Yeah. Uh, I went out and all. Well, let's hear some names. Uh, I went out <laughs> for uh, uh, NCIS Los Angeles, oh, uh, CSI. I did a couple, and the casting director. When I, I spoke, they they literally laughed in my face in my country accent. They literally laughed me out of the building, and it pissed me off. So you know, and I was I was seeing an acting coach out in LA at the time, and I was like, you know, maybe this just isn't for me. You have an accent. <laughs> no, no, I don't no, know what to do with no, it. I don't know any. Place I'm only joking. I want to back up to what you just said about yeah. maybe this ain't for me, yeah. and I want to stop you right there. You cannot. All, all I can't even imagine. I don't know how quickly did did this career come to you? Was it all open doors and welcome mats, or or oh, not? No. Because you wouldn't let you wouldn't let two people stop oh, you but, then. Yeah, but that. you know, I, I've dreamed about this since I was like just a little kid. This has always been the first and first. Got it, got it. So because but you about a, but it's it, but the there's, there's believe me, there's a process. There's a there's a role for you. There's a casting director. There's a yeah. producer out there yeah. that that um, can do. And, and more to the point, you have a situation now where you could create what you wanted on your own. Absolutely. If you wanted to make a small movie, if there was some story, a song. That you wanted to turn into a short film, Kenny Rogers. There you go. I'm, I'm I'm not even joking. I mean, Birmingham would be that could you know yeah. that I'm telling you. Yes, it could. Um, so uh, don't. And there's so many other production companies, and yes. they're shooting a lot of stuff in Alabama. Yeah. All now. I'm it's saying is don't don't let don't let don't let that stop. I, I say that in jest, but it was it's very frustrating uh, because I was I was trying to go out to California, you know, out to LA once a month. I had an acting coach, and I was trying to do some things out there, just trying to feel my way through it, to see if it was a, a path I wanted to go down. And who knows? I, I did a couple of really bad movies. <laughs> they were really bad. Yeah, but it's uh, it's all good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, it's so funny that the whole grass is greener thing i've been spending my life in la trying to get here and now you, <laughs> you're this, you know you're one of these uh top of the top guys here and now you're going maybe i'll go there so i, I think we're I always do. looking for a challenge yeah. a creative outlet and and I, I love the business side of the industry too you know i'm sure you're pretty hands-on at this place in life where you're managing your calendar and taking care of your day-to-day -day stuff too aren't you yeah i've been real real like we're saying i, I guess it worked out for a reason i find that they overlap really well the the music and the acting um yeah. and in fact i'm always sort of shocked when i see uh, a great artist that can't act that it sort of confounds me and makes me I, i'm like i want to get i don't understand this because you can when you're standing at that mic you're not you always you're singing i mean you don't know a girl in birmingham do you tracy no see no, so you're that was a character you were doing a monologue yeah. you were doing a mo you were telling a story yeah. And you were just doing it. You were singing and uh, while you did it. So if you and if you didn't do that from the depth of your heart and from the most honest place, it would that bell would not ring. You talk about being tight in your neck, but being tight in your truth, it would not flow. It would not. So I don't understand people that can do that, that can that can sing a monologue and make it be like the most authentic thing in the world. Then you take the music away and now sudden it becomes like this. And I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying uh, it makes way more people. I'm only saying it because people are like, well, I don't know. He's, he's an artist. You think he can act? I'm like, I think he can act more than I would think an average non-artist could, could act because he can, he, can, uh, give, he can send and telegraph emotions and say true things. So, so that's what it is. So how difficult is it from somebody that has been, you know, in front of the camera for years and years, when you uh, when you're watching a program, say a movie or an actor that you follow, I can tell 
when the director should have given him one more take, when they didn't quite lock in on the character. Does does that drive you crazy being able to see that when you're watching something? Only when it's me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know no, what I'm saying. I, I do. I, I do. But you yeah. might you might be wrong. Here's the other thing. They might have the take. They just might have used another one. Yeah. That's the hardest thing. We are so editor dependent. When I meet my editors, I am all smiles and hello. I want uh. You want your editor to like you, to love you. I like Because the other thing is you want to get your directors as well and your producers. It, that take might be in there. So that's why you really want to work with the best people. Because So if I see a bad take, yeah, I... Uh, and when I say a bad take, I mean and maybe maybe it was just something where you were a little bit stiff. You you were distracted, didn't lock into the character like you did on the last scene or whatever. It's yeah, just I something you weren't you you weren't being the person that you're projecting. I don't have to look at other people to find that. I just go back over my history. I remember there was a long time. I was always fascinated by people who projected so simply and clearly what you can tell they wanted to project, what the character wanted to radiate. Almost, uh, there's a word, the semiotics. It means the the physical manifestation, manifestation of like an internal thing. So what I'm saying, that's a fancy way of saying, does the face look like the emotion that you're feeling? And I would frequently see something I'd just be on. I'd go watch it. And I'd go, I thought I was radiating um, um, sad sincerity. Um, I look like I have gas. <laughs> so uh, my face in the early days was not, it was like a steering wheel that wasn't really working. It was a little yeah. loose and not going where you were aiming. Now, clearly you don't want to just make faces, and maybe that's what I was doing. I found over the years the most effective way to have your face be what you want is not be thinking about your face at all, but be thinking the emotions to be honestly truly in the moment as much as you can has a friend have a friend that says let the scene do you in other words let the actual circumstances of the scene once they start to mess with you once your relation like on outer banks my relationship with maddie klein who plays sarah plays my daughter once that actual scene i'm not thinking of i'm not substituting when my dog died or anything like that i'm just in that moment and yeah. it's then it then it started to get more authentic but i can um i can remember that feeling that it wasn't like that do you uh, is music the outlet for you that gives you the break from the acting? I mean, do you do you have time of the year where you work on a project where you go out and you play live shows? I mean, is there a balance that you're trying to achieve? Um, somebody asked me when do you um, how do you decide when you're going to make music and when you're going to um, act? And I go, I, I decide when I'm going to act when they call me up and hire me to act. <laughs> I'm always making music. Yeah, um, the acting is the the thing that that comes and goes and will come and go. People say what. What is the one that's more authentically you? And I guess in the end, I've, I've been so fortunate that I haven't had to choose, especially as Deacon. I was just, I don't have yeah. to. But uh, in the end, I can imagine a time where I'm not acting. I could imagine that. It's, it's, it's out there, but I hope it doesn't happen. But I can't imagine a time where I don't have a guitar in my hand and I'm writing a song or singing something I love like that. I literally can't imagine that. So yeah. that's kind of the, the bare answer to that. The rest of it, how it all works out together. Yeah, it, it, it works out time-wise, it works out, because a whole lot of acting, especially in a big ensemble, you're not always acting. When I was, I was in Barbados, we were shooting some of Outer Banks, and I was Zoom writing in my hotel room with, with some friends back here in Nashville, wrote some songs that are going to be on my upcoming album. Cool. And um, so that sort of never goes away. I think how they really complement themselves is that acting is extraordinarily a, a team sport. It's collaborative in the extreme. I mean, it's a small army of people 
that end up making this thing happen. And so somebody's writing for me what I'm going to say. Somebody's directing me how to say it. Somebody dresses me. Somebody's going to edit it. You know, um, the other actors are responding. So all of that is a dance with so many people. The music is in so many ways much more singular, much more right from the wellspring, you know, yeah. um, of I, I go, uh, you know, sit in a room with somebody and the two or three of us come up with this idea and this song. And then maybe um, I'll get to go that w a week later and go stand on stage at the, at the Grand Ole Opry and I'll get to hold my guitar and just me, whether it's with that great Opry band or not, just play that song. In that immediate moment, it will resonate or it won't. Yep. Um, as opposed to a show that my portion of it is is a small part of a giant hole, and it will air a year later, and I won't be there when it does. You'll be Netflixing with somebody watching it, and it'll it'll happen. It'll move you as it does. But I miss that that distilled immediacy is what really gets you. That's the thing about the music. You get that instant gratification right? back. I had, or the, you don't. Or you don't. <laughs> if it, if I had the go. hardest time, you know, when uh, when COVID hit. Uh, we kept going through the motions. I think the, I was out, Justin Moore and I were out that uh, first week of March uh, when everything shut down. I mean, we came back and the whole, everything shut down. Yep. And in my mind, I'm going, we're going back to work, we're going back to work, we're going back to work. When I finally had to accept the fact about July that we weren't going back to work, it was it was depressing because I'd never taken any kind of time like that off ever in years and years and years and years. And what I found is I finally got settled back into that place uh, when I went back to work, I had just as hard a time starting back up as I did shutting down. I mean, it was an emotional roller coaster trying to get my brain right and get back out there and do it all again. Well, that's it, was, it was like it was like it was like uh, going to rehab. I, I had to decompress when I finally accepted that we weren't going back out because not getting that weekend fix of of that crowd response was a really but tough then you thing. got you got unhooked from it you were able to you're a junkie on it and yeah. you were able to kick that habit so then when it's time to hear here's your fix again you're like oh i don't know getting don't back know. on that tour bus but then when you're up in front of that audience and you feel that light and you hear that noise again did, did it hit you immediately or not really it took a second it, it it hit me immediately but it took a while to get comfortable with it was more about the traveling and the being away from my family because we'd oh, had yeah. so much time together and i, I think a lot that of that people good. found that I think yeah. it's been uh, uh, a really a major shift in, our, in all of our consciousness is what we thought mattered and what we found out mattered and how we were able to do it and all that. Um, we were, I was real fortunate in that I was able, with my wife's help, we started this thing called the Quarantine Livestream. And it was just once a week, we on a Saturday or a Sunday, we'd get together and do a little over an hour. Yeah. I would just sit at a keyboard and, and a guitar and play maybe four or five songs and answer questions. My wife would get them off Facebook. It was a Facebook Live, and she'd, they want to know uh, where you got that guitar or whatever. And I would just, and so I, I was able to keep that bond with the audience, and that kept us sane for a little bit, um, for sure. And it, it was nice. It was good for people to maintain that community of the people that, you know, that care about music or, or want or want to have it at all. We did, we did a year of those. We did 52 weeks of those and uh, it meant a lot. I think people were desperately trying to find any way to hang on to it because I've never experienced anything like it where the entire entertainment industry was shut down. You couldn't go to a play. You couldn't go to the theater. You couldn't, no, you're I mean, right. you couldn't even, see even live like, music. Even like in World War II, yeah. the entertainment industry kept that, and that supported kept and lifted everybody. everybody. It, the it, movies, it, the radio. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right.
that was that was the painful part of it that uh, you you just kind of took that away from everybody. They didn't have anything to lean on for. I'll, I'll tell you this: that's one of the things about Outer Banks is we were one of the first shows um, to be released. We had shot just pre-COVID, and we were one of the first shows to be released right after the lockdowns. Um, and so there's all these families. I think it would have been uh, initially. It's it obviously is a young adult, you know, dramatic thriller kind of uh, adventure. Um, but all these young adults are sitting there with mom and dad and their great aunt and everybody. And, and so they'd all watch together. So it sort of was, well, it was really nice to hear from folks what a bonding thing it was, especially when you're locked down in a, yeah. in a small space to get to go on this golden treasure hunt. Uh, it was, it was a right time for a, for a sort of a, a dark and sort of only existence. And, and I tell you what, Outer Banks, I've been very impressed with the writing, uh, the the production and everything of it. I've, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, it seems like over the last year or so, and it may be because of an over oversaturation with all the streaming platforms, it seems like some scripts that, that people are putting money into are pretty weak. You might get the first season that's pretty stout, and then it's like they didn't tweak the storyline. It doesn't come together. It just gets and, – and I've just – I've noticed that they're – there may be too many scripts out there that they didn't take the time to finish. Yeah, this can, one didn't do that. It can be tricky, and and because I, I always, when you become a fan of something that first season, it's like watching somebody build a house of cards. Because you're, just, oh, here we go, season two. I knew uh, after season one, I said to those guys, I go, I don't know how you're going to do this because that was really intricate math. Whatever that was is nothing compared to what you're going to have to come up with now for season two. This is going to be calculus, and then season three. So it does to. To be fair, it gets harder. It's a lot easier to introduce people to characters they don't know and, and start all these things. Now you got these characters need to take an advantage. They need to go on an arc. They need to change a little bit. But if they change too much, then you lose all the tension. If the bad guy becomes good, then uh, too soon, then what are you left with kind of a thing. So it gets difficult, and especially when you consider that every ending of a season – they pretty much what you want to do is you want to put Houdini in the straitjacket, upside down, handcuffed, over the shark tank. And everybody thinks that every writer has, uh, we know, they go, well, you know what's going to happen in a couple seasons? I'm like, they don't know what's going to happen in the first episode of season two. They, uh, that's, I guess some do. Like, I'm blown away, like, by a Breaking Bad, just the, the way the consistency and the way yeah. the, the story, it seems as though, and it wasn't, I don't believe, that it was charted out to the end. It had that feeling, but... It's not. They write themselves into a corner, and then they use their talent and their ingenuity and their inspiration to get out of it. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> sometimes you run into the wall and you just can't get away. Exactly. From it. But I still respect the effort just because I, I, I have so much respect for that, for going, here's an idea I have. Now you write this amazing season. I, I feel for them, man. When they go back in that room and they go, everybody loves us. We have to keep enough of the stuff that everybody loves, but we have to take it some new place. And yeah, man, it's a. It's I a, just love the process. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm probably asking a lot of silly questions, but I love the process no, no, of how not. it's all put together because it takes so many people. And and you know and then then Lord forbid some crazy crap happened like with the Alec Baldwin thing on Rust out there. I mean, mm -hmm. so you, I mean when you're dealing with all these different elements and people and firearms oh, yeah. and all this other shows, stuff that goes on, shows that work and last and are able to bring it into a good landing. They're 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 kind of a miracle. Um, and once you're once you're on a show, you start to feel that pressure to bring it in. I remember for Nashville, um, it was always so important to me to land this thing because you're right you can take i don't want it to be like a rocket that just 
goes off into the sky and like a firework and explodes. You want it to be like a plane that takes this trip and everybody goes on it and then it lands. And then you can always look back on that amazing journey. Um, and that's not always an easy thing to do. And that's what you're fighting for every step of the way. Nashville was fascinating to me. My wife loved it. I had a hard time watching it because being inside the industry, uh -huh. it was a little bit difficult for me to, to stay engaged with, you know, because it's, everything's a little bit over the top. That's well, the that was, that, believe me, that was the, um, that was the tension of the show and of being on network television. I, yeah. There's a part of me that um, I, I don't, you know, you, like we said, things are meant to be as they're meant to be. But there's a part of me that wonders, like, if, we, if it wasn't network television, like, what would that have been on a streaming show where maybe you don't have to necessarily um, be chasing those more, I don't just mean hyper-dramatic moments. I guess hyper-dramatic moments. Like, clearly it's a show about songwriting and the business in Nashville. And Lord knows there's enough crazy stuff that happens in the industry that, yeah. and has happened that you can do that. But when you're on a network show like that, you need, you need something very dramatic yes. happening. So it's not so much how dramatic, but how often that dramatic kicks in that, that, that is, is difficult. That's, why the, that's the beauty of That's why a show like Grey's Anatomy can last for uh, 20 seasons is because they can have the human stories like uh, who, who loves who, whose heart is broken, who's missing who, and all these things. And then all of a sudden, they'll wheel somebody in with a stop sign going through their chest. And, <laughs> and, and all the adrenaline amps up and all the intensity. We, you know, if you're doing a show like Nashville, you're not going to have that, um, that ability. So you're going to have to create that somewhere else. I, um, uh, I don't know how many you watched, but I, I, I know in my heart that we were able to serve those two masters as, as well as we possibly could have. We, we, we actually served the, the, um, the, the form of what it is to be on network television on a show that um, is in that world. But also we smuggled in a whole lot of truth and a whole lot of um, uh, things that made people come up to me from the industry and go, Did, you got spies going on in our, in our you know. So uh, it wasn't always that, but I know that there was a through line of that. And I will say one other thing in respect to that show, the music um, never faltered. Um, the music was the, the clearest water of all of it that, that just stayed the, the purest and the truest in some way, um, more pure than some of the uh, songs that were on the radio at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, it, so. it was a great reflection of Nashville. It really was. I mean, it was what a huge, huge show that thing was. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was big. It was it was big for me. I'll tell you that it changed changed my life. Whenever I meet, uh, whenever I see Callie Curry, who is our, um, our creator, and um, obviously Oscar award winning writer for Thelma and Louise, and just a fantastic heart and brain, um, I, I just call her life changer. I go, hey, how's it going, life changer? Because uh, uh, it's a little clunky to the to the to say, but it is exactly what happened. How difficult is it uh, auditioning and things or, or staying in the loop being so removed from, from the West Coast, living here in Nashville? Well, I got a little ha lucky with um, uh, Outer Banks. They just called me up and asked me to do it, which uh, I find I prefer that way <laughs> to the audition. I like that. But I have to say that um, especially uh, post-lockdowns and all that, uh, most – most auditions these days are, are uh, video submits anyway. So I could be living a, a three blocks from the studio and I would still be making a video and, and uploading it to them. So it really doesn't, I don't think, matter that much. Uh, I've never been the guy that was at all the right parties anyway. I was raised my family there in the Sherman Oaks right there in the valley. And uh, 
I didn't go in across the, you know, they might as well have been the Himalayas, those Hollywood Hills that I, you know, to go over into Hollywood. I'd go over occasionally and uh, do improv with my friends from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yep. Um, but, uh, and, and I would have to go over there to do auditions. But other than that, um, it wasn't really my world. So I've always been a little bit of an outsider in that way anyway. I've loved to see so many actors and, and even rock musicians and people coming to Nashville and embracing this community here. It's a, oh, it's a yeah. different pace of life. I've watched this city grow so much. It's been amazing seeing the whole nightclub scene and the restaurants and the theater and just so many there's so many great things that have happened to the city in the last 15 years. It's been amazing to watch. Where would you put the... I, I think that, look... Nashville obviously had a huge impact on the city. Of yes, Nashville. it did. But I think it was it was like a um, in I remember being at Waimea in Hawaii, and these huge waves are coming in, it's massive. But then there's like a sandbar or something that the waves then go, and they go like that. Um, I think I think Nashville was already a huge wave about to happen, and then Nashville the show was here, and it just made it jump up like that uh, i think some of it i, I i've thought before because i've noticed this in other places sometimes it, these hard things like uh the flooding that happened in 2010 mm -hmm. just heartbreaking nobody would wish it again but so often uh the rebuilding from something like that starts you on a on a renaissance and a path i know that the grand old opry itself yes. um got completely renovated in a way that Perhaps it would not have been, again, not wishing it on the city or anything like that, but it's just a, a, a great image of the resilience of the city to take this thing that's happened and then to turn it into this renaissance of Nashville and all the new building and all the things that start happening. Then the show comes along, and, um, yeah, it's been amazing. Uh, for me, when I really think Nashville turned the corner as, as being perceived as a world-class city, uh, when we had the NFL draft here, Mm -hmm. and the uh, Stanley Cup Finals going on at the same time. There was half a million people on Lower Broad. We had the hotels and the restaurants and the Airbnbs to accommodate all of it. That's when I think people started looking at Nashville as a city where you can bring anything you want here and the city can accommodate it. I recall that. Yeah, that, I do that's recall. That's when I it really right. changed for me. Yep, yep. I will tell you this. When we, when we got here in 12 and we were shooting that pilot, um, I don't know if you recall, but especially for the pilot, we didn't really do, hardly do anything on sound stages. We did everything where they were. We were at the actual Bluebird. We were at the yep. actual Opry. We were um, in the actual um, home of Raina James, where that was actually uh, actually shot. Um, um, and so whenever we would go out all over the city on location, they call it, we would take vacant lots and we would put all your trailers there, your makeup trailer, hair, wardrobe, actors' trailers, all that stuff. By the time we were done shooting six years later, there were no vacant lots. <laughs> Literally, we couldn't do yeah. that. We had to park across the river in the Nissan Stadium parking lots. They would let us park over there and then van across the river because all those vacant lots were uh, skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all changed. I, I remember when I moved to Nashville in the early 90s, Lower Broad was a place that you didn't go. The only thing down there was like Tootsie's. And you play the Ryman and you might hit a couple places. But, I mean, you could have bought any of those buildings down there for a couple of hundred grand down there. They're going for seven or eight million apiece before you gut them. I mean, yeah, it's I remember crazy. A, I remember as a kid hearing Rhinestone Cowboy, and as <laughs> I know every crack on these dirty sidewalks of Broadway. And it was only later when I heard that that I go, when that got written, 
they were they were the dirt. Not that they're spick and span now on, on a Saturday no. night, but it's a much shinier, uh, glitterier place than it was back then, right? I'm, I'm proud to call the city home. I oh, love the things. Me that too. Changed, and and it's a, it's a great. I place didn't, to you'll notice I didn't leave. <laughs> when I don't the, blame you. When the show was done, nobody came by and said you got to go. So I just I, we just sort of stayed. How old are you kids? How old are kids? Well, we got um, my kids are great. Uh, we are empty nesters. When we came here, we had a, a, a one going into eighth, one going into tenth, and one going into our senior year. Um, and now um, our, our youngest is just finishing up her fifth year. She's a, a D1 athlete. She played soccer, and she got a red sort of a COVID red shirt and finished up. So uh, my eldest, my daughter, is still here in town. She's an artist, a singer-songwriter. Um, my son's out in California where he is um, – Improbably, a rocket scientist. He works for wow. the Jet Propulsion Labs on the Mars program. Awesome. And then my youngest is just graduating uh, from her with her business degree. Wow, uh, that's master's amazing. in business. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll pretend I had something to do with that. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> I, I, it's it's great. I'm great that you're here, and I'm glad. But we've had an opportunity for our paths to cross over the years. Man, Nashville is a great city. It well, really is. You know, I love it. Right? You can tell. Right? I do. Yeah, so yeah. let's let's talk more about music. I, I had a chance to listen to a few of your things uh, as I was prepping for this, uh, you have a very soulful voice. I didn't realize how soulful your voice really was on some of the things that you do. I'm a little Michael Boltonish at times. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you. I, um, I guess I'm just, uh, it's funny. I think, I, I, I don't know. It is, I don't know what my, I, I am so in awe and in envious of a voice like yours that is that, Rich, those deep rich notes when you get down there and then it moves up and it gets real sweet up top and breaks right all the right places and moves on a note i think what you're hearing and saying is a nice way of saying it's it's huskier it's a little gravelier it's a little uh and uh no no you have a great voice oh really i appreciate do. it um i'm just i just can't not put my heart into these things and so i think i don't i've said this before um I'm not the kind of vocalist that has a shot at perfection, but I do have a shot at connection. And so that's what I am always aiming for the most is that connection, whether it's um, from the song, yeah, definitely from the song to the audience, but also from me to the song. I just want to be in that moment as much as I can. And man, it's something I could interview you and ask you questions for a thousand years about your time in the studio and at the mic and where you go and how you, what you're thinking and how, sometimes just like a performance and acting, I go, oh, you put a little too much mustard on that one. Just simpler. Just just be there and do it, you know. Or the other time you go, man, you could have added a little more to that. That's a little, that's a little dry bread right there. So I'm always trying to figure out how to dial it in. But mostly I, I find that it's just when you're in the flow and you're not even thinking of that and it's just coming out. But how did – do you remember your early recording and what were you already great at? Did you just come right out of the box great in the studio with the headphones on in front of a mic? Or you know, I didn't. When uh, you first heard your voice on that mic, you're like, damn, I'm good. Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a lot of confidence in, in my vocal ability, but I didn't – 
I had a lot of tools in the in my toolbox. I just didn't know when and where and why and how to use them, you know, because I had spent so many years emulating so many people. There I mean, you I go. Could, I could sound like Keith Whitley. I could sound like Merle Haggard. I could sound like George Strait, right on down the list. And my my blessing was getting in the studio with James Stroud, who was a phenomenal record producer. James really honed in on the things that made me unique and special, and he started kind of shaving away the things that were so-so or it's too oh. cool with everybody. Me where and, I and, here. He, I and he this. shaped me. He shaped me up to the point that really, as I grew and mature, I, I call James my musical father because he taught me so much about how to work a microphone in the studio, how to be a vocalist, how to put tracks together as a producer, how to how to look for those magic things in a song, how to structure a vocal, and when you know if you're you want to save that little special lick for the last yep. chorus or something. I mean, how to how to build that dynamic in a, in a lyric. I mean, there's so many things. A lot of it's you think comes really natural but you do have to put a little thought into it to make it feel right yeah i mean i jokingly said at the beginning i was gonna uh, before we started i was asking you about how you move on certain words and with multiple notes and all and i said i wasn't sure if you knew or you just did it and what you're saying is and it makes sense yes there's craft to it but there's also art to it there's also innate sensibilities you learn all these rules and then you throw the rules out and it just comes out of you like that um i just Hearing you say that is really moving me because that's every artist's sort of journey. I came up trying to sound like everybody else. I, I played Buddy Holly for two years. I played the man on stage. I sang That'll Be the Day. God bless him more than he ever got to. Yeah. And uh, then later I was on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I'm singing like Sting on one song and like Springsteen the next and like Orbis in the next. And so I'm all over the place. So that by the time I get here, now I'm figuring out, I, I was able to figure out who Deacon was before I was able to figure out who I was. And you're right, it's peeling away a lot of that stuff. It's funny, you say he, it's not like he molded you. He did, they always say that um, all the great sculptors, all they're doing is, you know, like Michelangelo would just cut away everything that's not David. Yeah. And that's what he did with you is he, he cut away everything that wasn't just authentically you and what he was left with was, uh, well, beautiful. Yeah. It's uh, It's been a fascinating journey, to say the least, you know. And I think sometimes you bite off a little bit more than you can chew. I, I had to accept early on, I loved heavy metal. I was all into hair bands and stuff in high school, you know. Oh, are you serious? Was, uh, you know, I was into Led Zeppelin and, 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 you know, Van Halen and all this stuff. I just never had the voice for it. It just, it never fit into my, my box got, that I lived I would in. think, I never really thought about it. They say some people have a, a face that a camera loves. Like, yeah. you might meet somebody, you see them, and you're like, um... You're like, hey, he's all right looking, but on camera, my God, look at that person. I get the opposite. People people come up and they go, you're much more handsome in person. And I go, well, that's a damn shame because way more people see me on TV. But thank you, I think. But in any event, you got a, – it must have been like you had a voice that a mic loved. Like you knew you could sing live, and everybody loved you in the living room or in the talent show or on the band. But but in the studio, um, yeah, I would think it had to be like, oh, damn, we got something here. Yeah, it, it <clears throat> felt really good. Uh, you know, I go back – Because you could push less, am I right? You could just sit into the – I don't know if you pushed a lot more, but if you're trying to sing hair metal, you probably were. But, but I mean, just the gentleness of the, and the intimacy of the moment with some of the songs you'd sing. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Well, that's, yeah, yeah I'm, we're just having a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's like a, there's a spot on the microphone. When, when you're doing vocals, when all the tracks and everything are done, and you're standing there in front of that mic – 
I really try to get to a place. I usually put my control box on the, my right side so I can adjust my levels and different things. If I need different instrumentation, I've usually got a Q8 or something there that I can adjust. But once I find that spot on that microphone and I get my tone and my breath flowing, I plant my feet. And I want somebody, if I'm punching lines, I want them to come back at me quick, quick. Don't let me move. Don't let me lose my focus. Because if you let me stay in that spot, I can hit them every single time. And if I move my feet or I take a breath and I move, it might take me 10 minutes to find that spot again to match that tone and that vocal intensity and that breath. It's oh, really strange, wow. Man. That's beautiful, man. That's the stuff I'm talking about. Now, I don't hear about that at all. You should do one of those... One of those master classes on on mic technique. Sincerely, I've I've seen some uh, uh, some great ones. I don't know that. Yeah, I'm. That that's brand new to me, and I've recorded way too much not to have heard that. It's it's, <laughs> and, and I guess we all have our own weird quirks. Uh, my my, I had a mental issue for a long time uh, with compression. And a lot of people don't. If you don't understand what compression is, compression is, it's a piece of gear, and it will actually clamp you off. So if you hit something really hard, it's going to stop you. It's like a ceiling. And and my, I had a real powerful voice. I wanted to sing through it, and I couldn't get my brain to process the fact that I could not sing through that. So a lot of times when I'd get in the studio, I just make them turn all the compression off on me, put it in after the fact, because if I can't hear it, I over sing, I push too hard, and I've I've had to mentally adjust to that over the years. That that's is been an Achilles. That is well, I, I, but it's an Achilles heel that I understand because you and and I'm not a, I, I I don't quite understand it either if I'm honest. And I, what I, what I recall is my favorite thing about the old albums and the songs I listen to is the dynamic range. And so I wanted it to be able to get. There's times I want to sing very. I find myself I find myself being more of a producer on my voice than the actor i find myself i'm intentionally singing around back off, i'll fade by backing off the mic it's like no let them do that sing the thing but i hear that i hear the levels in my head i hear i want it quiet now and now i want it big now um yeah. and a compression does make that hard and you're trying to fight it you're right you can't beat it especially when you're trying to <laughs> sing through it uh especially when you're going up for really high notes and i have to push so much air to hit those notes yep. that if they put too com much compression on me i'll i'll go sharp i'll over sing it because i'm trying to push through to get to the other side of it and it just mm -hmm. it, it blows up in my face but everybody's got their little quirks you know a lot of people, yeah there i i don't i never could understand how garth could put that microphone in his cowboy hat and keep that thing right in his face like that and, and he can't work a microphone like that so i mean i can't imagine what his ear mix must have sounded like with all the gates and the compression because they would have had to gate every drum sound. I mean, they would have had to done so much stuff to get that thing locked in because he couldn't move. I tell not you, not able to work that microphone. I at totally all. get that, and I've often thought the same question, especially let alone now when he started doing it. The the, the quality of those mics. Oh yeah. I, I, was it good? Was it great? I don't. I mean, he was the first one to do. It. I don't. I don't right. think they were great. Almost first and the last, like he and yeah. Janet Jackson. And uh, <laughs> believe me, that sort of energy, I I get that. I'm the type of performer that I could benefit from having a guitar that wasn't hooked up and having a mic that wasn't hooked up and be, I'm I'm all over the place. I'm not that stand and deliver guy. I'm uh, you know and so part of me would do that if I thought you wouldn't immediately get oh look at Garth Brooks over there with the microphone. I just I just don't think it's so it's so you know characteristic of him. I don't think I could 
pull it off or, or you know uh but but man I, I can i can get the reason why it might be nice to be over there doing that and he sure sure as hell makes the most of it so um yeah but he's I done all right you, oh yeah he's done all, he's right. Done all right but i but, but you're you're right about how to um uh, you know what is the technique on such a thing but i think that that might be what i said is he made the um the artistic decision that um uh, i might have more perfection on another mic but i might have more connection on this one you know, if you think about the difference in music, let's go back to the vinyl days and think how much different the recording process was back then. When we record a record now, everything's on Pro Tools. It's all in the digital box. When you see that band come through, everything is shoved all the way up the top. The dynamics that you used to see on the graph are yep. so much different. I think we're, we're, we're raising a generation of kids that don't appreciate really good sonic, the sound that music is really supposed to have because it's all right here. Now, they're, they're missing all the dynamics and the super highs and the lows and just the flow and the warmth of what you used to get from playing an album or even a CD in the early days when we were still cutting on analog we've lost some of that on this on my upcoming album i've released two singles so far and there's places where we've we've had that conversation and and there's places where it man it gets real quiet and I'm, I'm really trying to get some of that dynamic range into it and 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 also just a place where um you know multiple parts of a song and nowadays you know you can just go in one chord progression the whole it's the verse it's yeah. the chorus it's the bridge it's everything as opposed to oh this is a whole different other coda or section of a song like like we used to have that as well um so that's that's been great but you talk about new recordings i remember one of the first uh, the single i did before this two that i'm uh, the, i've got one out for my album another one coming but, but the single before that was a song called um worst day and i recorded that with my friend julia cole who's a young amazing singer songwriter artist she's fantastic and uh, her, her, um, Fred Wilhelm is a buddy of mine, songwriter, and Josh Ronan was um, the producer on that. And while we're writing it, this is all new to me. While we're writing it, Josh is on the computer making it come alive. And here comes he's laying down a bass track and he's put some guitars and keyboards. By the time we're done writing this thing, he's ready for Julia and I to lay down our vocals. And I, I mean. I haven't been here that long, you know, Tracy, but I've been here long enough that I'm used to go put on some headphones, stand in a booth, have a, scr a, a screen in front of my mic and, you know, and have a couple takes. He hands her the mic. She's sitting in the chair just like you are. And she sings a take on that thing that made me just like, my ears went back. Like, how did she, it was no perfect and it was so right on. It had so much heart and so I wouldn't have wanted another take. And they go, okay, Chip, and they hand me the mic because it's a duet and I'm like, <laughs> Me, 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 me. I'm like, holy moly, here we go. So I had to stand up, but just stand and delivered right there. And those that's the take on the track. And it was um that's that's how we did it. And so I was flexible in that moment to go do that thing. And I and I don't think I'd change anything about it. I don't know, but it's got that that soulful when you what you say soulful was chip going, Can I hit that note? Um <laughs> lots of air. You gotta exactly, get Exactly, yeah, of air. lots of air, yeah, yeah. But so yeah, I guess it that's that's the way. It it takes all different ways, but I'm I'm happy to try some and then but for this album for, for me I, I was I was real excited to go do it that other way. So I know that uh, some of Nashville, at least some of the music, I, I know I saw the trucks down in front of Ocean Way several times, the recording studio. Did you ever get a chance to record anything in that studio at all? Um, the old church that's right there? Oh, I know yeah. it. I know it for sure. Um, I'm trying to think if I... I did not then. I recently, not too long ago, I got to re record with uh, 
Keb Moe and Lindsay L. We did no a, kidding. We did, we did a song for um, awesome. Nashville to come on back to Nashville, kind of a thing. So we sat in the round there, and I've and I've uh, I've done other things like that. I've been a part of other recordings that were not Nashville. Um, I recorded. It was real nice for me on this album that I'm making. That I uh, I don't even think Marshall, uh, my producer Marshall Altman, even knew this, but. Um, I record most of recorded most of my uh, Deacon stuff in Sound Emporium, yeah, and uh, and so we just happened to be in there, and we did that whole uh, that whole album in Sound Emporium, and not only that, but he uh, he brought in the keyboard player. He brought in was Tim Lauer, and Tim Lauer not only played keyboards for most of the time my time on Nashville, but Tim Lauer was the musical supervisor. Played he was our producer for the final two seasons. Um, and so Tim and I had worked hand in glove and he, a dear friend. And, and so it was so, it was so nice. I don't know if this has ever been a big part of it. If your favorite albums were in your favorite studios, I guess, with your favorite people. I mean, I'm sure you can make better albums without those things, but it's nice to get to be that, that sort of comfort zone where you're somewhere you've been before and you're with people you've been with before. Uh, it it, it does make a difference. I, uh, Derek, I stole him from Sound Emporium. He was, he was, I was an actually, engineer. I was actually working there when you guys were recording a lot of those. I, record, I, yeah. I assisted on at least two of them. And my question for you was going to be, you know, Buddy Miller and the T-Bone Burnett kind of deal. It was a little intimidating for me to be in there with, the, with those cats. Normally I don't get starstruck at all, but was it ever – were they in the room with you when you were cutting your vocals? Did they beat you up? Did they encourage you? How did they, that come Well, um, yeah, you think you're intimidated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean uh, – I was intimidated, but I knew that Deacon wasn't. So my alter ego was not. So I got to be this other guy that wasn't. And I knew that intentionally. That And even going back to the audition process, I've been, you know, I'm a, I'm from Virginia, I'm raised in Virginia, so there's a little bit of Southern boy in me, good, polite Southern boy. And I would always, you know, dress up and shave and get ready for every audition, <laughs> like even ones where I probably should know. And a little bit of nervousness. But when I auditioned for Deacon, I knew by then, I, I was old enough that I knew this guy did not care. He'd just been around long enough that, what are we going to do? You want, me, you want me to play guitar on this or not? Uh, uh, you know, either way. So I sort of assumed that. That helped me going into those situations. But I will say that uh, they were that's the initial reaction. They were both incredibly kind. And they're both, you're not going to be that good a producer if you intimidate everybody around you to the point of freezing up and not being able to, what you were saying earlier, to have that flow. So both of them were very good at putting not just me at ease, um, but some, somebody like um, uh, Connie Britton, who never claimed to be a, an artist or a singer. you know. And so they were able to put her at ease in front of a microphone and, and, and make her feel she was in a safe spot um, and all the other uh, performers. So that's part of that toolbox. If you don't got that tool, none of the others make a difference. Yeah, you can work with all the greats who aren't intimidated by you, but can you work with the ones that need your help and need your greatness? Um, they were able to do that. Um, th working with them was fantastic. Go quick... T-Bone story, I've been playing uh, guitar, look, I've been playing guitar so long, I, Lord, I should be so much better at it, right? You know what I mean? It's really <laughs> pathetic how bad I am for as long as I've played. Well, I remember being around him, and I'm just sitting there, and I was. he asked me to play him something, so I'm playing him something, and... That poor guitar, I was, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. First of all, I didn't have the band with me, so you're sort of, sort of playing drums on the guitar and a little bit of bass while you're playing some chords. You're beating the hell out of that poor thing. He, 
and you know and this is a guy to whom guitars are you know <laughs> religious icons and, in, and instruments of the church you know what i mean so he sees me beating the hell he goes here he goes let me show you something and he showed me how to he showed me it reminded me i already knew it's it's a resonant instrument just like you said earlier your body's a resonant instrument if you if you tighten it up you lose all its resonance so he says let go of it don't <laughs> give it a break you know you're not wrestling it you're playing it and now watch that resonate and then he's uh, was just showing okay now he did this exercise with me he said strum it at a tempo a normal tempo and then just keep going and make it louder and louder make your strum louder and louder and keep going Till and just keep going past, play it as hard as you can, you know, it'll be all right now. And he goes, now when we were done, he goes, now did you notice there was a point where playing harder than that did not make it any louder? And, and it was like a revelation to me that there was a sweet spot of just how loud to play it that was actually not that hard, but was loud, as loud as when I was banging it and losing any tonality and losing any... Um, purity to it so that was a beautiful thing um that little thing it let me because deacon good lord deacon needed to treat guitars with respect and play them like he knew how to play them and play them. so that was a huge thing for me early on my favorite buddy one is buddy played so much guitar on the early ones he was all buddy took over for the music uh, after t-bone left for the th second third and fourth seasons i think um but uh buddy I played a ton of guitar before that. Uh, Colin Linden played all the Deacon parts. But I remember Buddy, er, first season, comes out of the <laughs> studio, and he just played, I think, maybe some baritone guitar part, some real low-down Deacon-y lick, you know, or something. <laughs> and he comes out, and uh, T-Bone obviously loved it, and T-Bone says, uh, so, uh, Buddy, that was, that was great. He goes, you, you, you want to play one more, do one more? And he goes, Buddy said, well, I could, but it might get better. <laughs> And it was a bit of a joke, but it was also some truth in there. Like, yeah, I could play it more perfect, but I don't know if I could play it more the way it was meant to be than that. T-Bone's pretty amazing. I mean, what's the uh, the HBO thing that uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey was in? The True Detective. His musical oh, yeah. score on True Detective was oh, yeah. pretty freaking phenomenal. I, I mean, just just the stripped-down nature of it. Some of those isolated scenes where it was like one artist in a bar with just like the smoke and the one light on them just doing this haunting. Some of that stuff was really amazing well, to me. First of all, in my book, he's a genius. And, but he is. It was, it, was, it was really something to work with him that meant the world to me that we had him for that first season really established a tone for Nashville. Yeah. He, he said back then he was aiming he wasn't aiming at country radio, which literally everybody else would have done. Why wouldn't you? I would have. If you're trying to recreate it, what he knew was that there were songs that would be more evocative and moving than than what we're on country radio right now. Have more that tone. It would be the. It was a muddier, darker river we were floating. Well, in. When you, when you're doing a score like that, you're not trying to get all the imagery you can in a three minute song because you're trying to get it up the charts for radio. You can take smaller sections sections of it and get the most emote all that out of it. Absolutely, and he's he's so great at that that atmospheric part as well and just the songs they chose it was like whew, I, was, I felt really really blessed it's uh it's i'm fascinated by all the aspects of all the things that go into it i mean i, I love talking about it with people that have been inside i just i've always you know where i first heard t-bone real quick i was i didn't even realize it till later i was a huge fan of um been an elvis costello fan for a long long time and there was an album spike that had so many great 
songs on it. Just such a great album. But more than any of that, I remember thinking the variety of song of of sounds. It wasn't just bass and snare, and it, it just had this um, panoply of uh, a cacophony of different. Like, what is that noise? <laughs> Tom's all these things, this vocabulary of why does it just have to be a snare and a, and a you know a snare with a towel over it and, a, and it doesn't. It can be so much more than that. And I and I, I loved that. And, and he and he definitely brings that, but he brings so much more. Of course, the other thing about T Bone is if you go back and research, one of the great acoustic guitar players um, uh, ever. Um, I, I was watching uh, a, a, a the Dylan um, documentary. Um, uh, about that, that tour, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the band. That there was a certain tour the Ro- review, the Rolling Thunder review. I think, am I saying that right? I'm not sure. In any event, yeah, hook that up if you get a chance. In any event, right up there on the stage behind uh, Dylan back then is a is a very young but certainly recognizable uh, T Bone Burnett playing uh, that that guitar, that acoustic guitar back there, and he was not uh, he was not wrestling it. He was playing. Yeah, but he's uh, some guys just have a natural gift for it. I think I've been fighting that guitar for four years. <laughs> that's part. No, of that's the part you do got to know is that, that there's a natural gift for it. That's I was asking you earlier about moving on notes. You just got a, a natural gift for it. And then you then you enhance your gifts, obviously. But yeah, I do think that I, I do think that I have tried scales. I've done it all. It just doesn't come I, as quick. It just doesn't. How'd I do on that name? Was it Relic <laughs> Thunder Review? That's it, man. Oh, I move on to the bonus round. And by the way, Tim Lauer didn't mean to leave him out. He is incredible, eloquently spoken. He's a freaking genius, man. Incredible musician. Great to be around. Absolutely. So, yep. Absolutely. And Tim, once again, by the way, so much on my album. He brought so much atmosphere. Um, th- there was uh, there was a songs, there were songs where, it, where it's sort of like the more um, patches, like, you know, from like more modern patches and keep and those went just perfectly just a little bit of it and through the filling in everywhere and then there's another time he just gets out a squeeze box just like this little small little accordion and man that just makes the i just man i want to sit and i wish i wish i had examples right now to play you but it was a he brought so much to it i love it so much you know i've heard stories you know back before pro tools before everything where every sample of every bird chirp and every stick on a on a on a uh, tire hubcap you know everything was in the box people used to get just kind of say i wonder what this sounds like let's go outside and hit this with this let's go outside (laughs) and throw this against the wall let's go outside and mic this i mean if you think about that it was all trial and error you know and and absolutely somewhere out there there's a few things that we hadn't hit hit with a stick yet probably (laughs) i don't know (laughs) yeah there's a lot of stuff in the box these days exactly yeah that's what i'm saying yeah it's funny you're you're absolutely right but um the people that break those barriers um, that aren't the good, you know, I'll be a good boy and do it the way that it's always been done. That's the stuff that people go, wait, what was that? What was that song, you know? Oh, without a doubt. So musically, what's uh, what's some of your favorite artists that you listen to? I mean, do you you a country listener? I mean, you kind of cross the board a little pop I, rock, I, old stuff? I started off as a, as a country listener, especially old stuff, because of my father. And yeah. he used to play me. Um, oh, there was, at the time, it was uh, Waylon. You know, Willie, uh, a lot of that stuff. A lot of that, um, I guess it was 80s revival that Urban Cowboy brought. It really oh, brought yeah. it into it that, into it for a moment. Um, uh, really brought it out big time. Uh, it blows my mind. I was thinking about that, the whole John Travolta thing, that he literally started two musical 
um, revolutions. Revolutions. Yes, he uh, did. He, he started the disco revolution, mm -hmm. and then he uh, then he uh, brought country so squarely into the pop world again. It had been before. It wasn't the first time, and people like Kenny had already you know done it to some degree. But yeah, but so I remember listening then. Um, but then I think as it happens that age, you were listening to heavy metal. I got to rock. You know that that soulfulness you spoke of is probably me sometimes emulating uh, Springsteen or or just feeling that yeah. and singing that way or or Petty and all those guys. But then of course you go back and you go, they were relative to now, they were singing country too. A song like Thunder Road, you know, um, or a song, you know, so many. Uh, petty songs. It's it's sort of, I guess, what the birds did in crossing over and bringing pop and rock and country all together. So that was my world uh, for sure. Um, when I played Buddy Holly for those years, I definitely fell hard uh, for the simple genius of those songs. Talk about three chords and the truth, three chords and a rhythm. Talk about hitting things, um, whether it was... Um, um, Jerry on like every day just doing his lap. Every day it's getting. That was a moment where they would just get together and they would just make these sounds. Um, I could go down that path forever. I'm going to try not to. But just in terms of getting to play that guy, the refrain that I said constantly in that play, it's more than once, is Buddy, you know, came to Nashville. Did you know this? Uh, I think had him a and Deca, Roy, Or had Orbison a, were all kind of here he at the same time. He had a audition. And it did not go well. Um, the oh. great Owen Bradley well, certainly had every right to tell some 18, 19-year-old kid, we're not, you're, your guys are not playing. He's not playing that drums. We're not doing it this way. We're not and Buddy just was like, I just want to play my music my way. And, it, and I must have said that was three times in the play. I, Look, Hot Pockets, I just want to play my music my way and that's what every artist has been saying that's since. the age-old fight between artists and record labels and it's not going to change anytime soon exactly so it's it was wild for me to go up and see you know this statue of owen right there near the near the big circle and i'm a huge fan of all the songs he made but to know that i said that at the beginning of my career and here i am you know all these the bookend later that was the early bookend was buddy playing guitar and singing and acting and then nashville playing guitar and singing and acting and it brought me here to this town where he did not get so i've sung a couple buddy songs on the opry because he never got to um, um so he made a big influence on me i think there's an influence uh, a lot of his um, music as well on um optimism in the face of <laughs> all evidence <laughs> like why should i have optimism right now but i do if you look for a through line of some of his music it's like that'll be the day that you say goodbye that'll be the day like you ain't you know there's sort of a a bravado that's barely being held on to. Maybe, baby, I'll have you. Maybe, baby, you'll be true. Maybe, baby, you know, I'll have you. Will love me someday. Um, it's so easy to fall in love, you know. Um, but you know, there's a confidence that an artist, in any any discipline, whether it's acting or music or or a musician, uh, you have to have that confidence, even if you're not the greatest thing. Sometimes. The confidence and the belief that you have in yourself can transcend your lack of ability. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's because there are, there are people that are not great singers that have had tremendous careers as artists. I'm counting on it. You know, Chris Christopherson, <laughs> I mean, even Dylan oh, wasn't a great yeah. singer. We can yeah. go down the road of people yeah. that just never had the confidence. They had talent in other areas, but this other stuff happened. It was like their, their destiny, and they didn't even want to do it. But I, I think sometimes... I think that pushes some people without confidence through. I know some people that aren't super confident, but they can't not do it that's it exactly um 
so continuing on from there, so there's Buddy, and then when I came back and to the states, and I was listening to other things. But as you start getting to have kids, I was turning the rock stations off a little bit and going back to country music um, that you were that right around when you were make, uh, starting up making it. Um, so I had gone from the earlier stuff and gone away for those teenage years when I was in a band and all. And then slowly I realized that that country music, that sweet spot there, those '90s and all that, was sounding more like my life. Yeah. It was sounding more like what resonated with me. And also, it, it was more how I wrote. I wrote less. Rock is sometimes less literal, less storytelling. Um, A little more abstract at yeah. times. Yeah, I just prefer the... I prefer the, I almost use the word perfection of a country song. And I do mean it. Like you're telling it, you know that the first verse has to do this. Second verse has to augment that a little bit. Bridge better say something different. And the chorus better say the main part of it again and again. And as the song goes on, maybe the meaning of that chorus has changed, but it better. Um, you, you can't just, there's got to be a story in there. And those stories, and not just the cleverness of the stories, but yes, the cleverness. The, um, like the funniest songs are, you know, uh, I don't know. There's just a mathematical perfection to a great country song that I love so much. I love when you're writing one. And when you're listening to one, you go, all right, they set up that first verse and that second. How, can they, once again, can they land this thing? Oh yeah, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it slides off the end of the runway. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when you do, it just feels like, oh, that is, that is really, that is really. That's what I love about the Bluebird is being in there watching the the songwriters that fought for that thing and wrestled it to the ground, or that it just came to. Yeah, but I'm telling you, sometimes you you get in that room. And uh, you have a, a buddy or a couple of guys, and you sit there and you shoot the breeze for a little bit. You're searching for a title, man. Maybe somebody's got a melody. Being able to take something from that small seed of just that little idea and go through the process over a three- or four-hour period and come out at the end of it with something that sometimes is a masterpiece. It's oh. very gratifying to me. It's better than any therapist I've ever been to because you're purging all this stuff. Sometimes they're a little bit more personal, but just the collaboration, I, I find a lot of satisfaction. Oh, in man, you are preaching to the choir. It's, if I'm honest, it's my favorite part. I love it. Because that's where you're, that's where you're dancing with magic. Um, like you said, I love, I mean, on the, on the crassest part of it, I sometimes think it's almost like sex. And, 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 that, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things that go along with that. Like you, you walk into the room, maybe it's two people, and you don't just get to it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a, a little courting that goes there's on. There's a little courting that goes on. It's called the hang. You sit and you yeah. talk, oh, how you been? I don't know how you been. <laughs> you know, and, you, and you share these things about it. There's a little preamble to it all. Or things there better be. And then, um, and then, but mostly what happens is that two people walk into a room, and when you leave, there's three. There's this third thing, this entity that... That wasn't there when you got Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's why it's called the creative process but and the cool thing about that third thing about that entity is it could just be some little kid no one ever hears about or it could go on to rule the world it could go on to be i will always love you oh without or, a doubt. Yeah. Or, the, or the gambler it can it, or it can just be a song that it can be amazing grace it could, whatever it can be it can lift the world and change the world and it started in that and the other thing i said this to somebody not long ago but once it hit me it was like that's it is Songwriting is a magic trick 
that the magician doesn't even understand how it works. Wow. Magicians, like if I pull a, a dove out of a hat, you're blown away, but I know it's what I'm really doing. But when you write a song, we don't know what we're really doing. We know that we look, we know the, the, the craft of it. We know how to structure this, this goes there, that goes. But when it hits that, there's a part of it. It's a magic trick that you had no idea how you did. Am I right? And, and it's an, an evolving situation, too, because you take that song with an acoustic vocal or a piano vocal that you've, that you've just created, and then you go into the studio and you surround yourself with all these amazing players, and the producer has chemistry with them, and they all know what to do because he's been play, working with these players, and you take it to the next level where you massage this thing into something just absolutely amazing. I never get tired of that. Or the problem can be that you can have this thing that was meant to be something and you walk in and other visions of it and that way whoa uh, we you know whatever song it is the song it's weird to me how songs seem to be what there seems to be a look it should be so subjective but sometimes it objectively seems like this is what the song is like you could put different production on it and go think about this you take five artists even if it was five country artists, say a pop artist, a rock artist, a country artist male, a country artist female, maybe throw something there. You give them an acoustic demo of the same song and send them in with their own people and see how different each one of them sounds. I'd love to hear that album. It would be absolutely amazing. I would to love see. to hear that album because the song. Because the song would dictate how it fit that artist. It would be completely different from person to person. None of them would be even. But I sort of feel like... At the end, like say it was say it was an album with fifteen c- tracks on it. Make them all country. It would be clear at the end that's the song. Oh, you'd know absolutely. When I I don't think I don't know. Maybe I'm monogamous in terms of songs that I, I'm kind of that way. I mean, it's sort of hard to say. I mean, that's why you hear those phrases like "That little girl stole my song," said Otis Redding about Aretha Franklin. Otis Redding, uh, after he sang, you know, he wrote Respect and sang Respect. But when he heard Aretha sang it, he went, that's the song. Yeah. That, that's what was in my head. Um, I mean, I Will Always Love You is a tricky one because yeah, Dolly Whitney, sang it. That uh, was the song for Whitney. She, and she wrote it for Porter. And then <laughs> yeah. Whitney took it to this And I think, place. yeah, exactly. So you just, not, uh, it's just funny how you can go, that's what it was. You were talking about the different production on um, Birmingham mm-hmm. and the different ways and, and where you guys ended up, I, it's hard. Maybe it obviously has an advantage because that's the one that got famous and the one that you know you led with. But it's hard to imagine that being produced too much differently than that. No, I couldn't imagine it being produced any other way because it, it just doesn't sound right. It's, it's never going to be the same. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, but I love I love that process getting in there. And like, once again, you said you're a you're molding it, or are you chipping away what it's not? Are you are you just cutting away those things that it isn't? Because you can bring so much to it and go. I, I've learned that a lot of that in in this production in the post production with um with Marshall is like there'd be a whole track and it's it's a cool part, but. Take it, just even just mute it and go, that's the song. That's closer to the song. So it's not just we need to add this thing to it. It's like we need to subtract this thing from it. Yeah, sometimes you don't need to use every track you have available to you because we have an <laughs> endless amount of tracks these days, and sometimes less is more. Yeah, and, and, and it's not the player's fault. The player's just sitting there has an idea. It might work, it might not, and it sure. might be right in, in another, you know, another producer artist's hands. But in that moment right now, it's, it's not, yeah. What, uh, what's next for you? 
as you, I, I guess, if you've already you've already done season three of Outer Banks, yeah, it's already in the can. Yes, yes, is sir. Is there a season four that's expected? There is a season four. They, they, uh, it's been picked up for a season four. Um, we'll see uh, what that means uh, for me. Um, any other things on your radar that you're looking at? Any any role well, that you? I've, I've I've done a couple auditions, uh, but I don't speak of them because that's a sure way not to get them. <laughs> 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 but um, uh, I've been glad in that this album coming out right now it means i can focus on that but also another cool thing is that um uh, my buddy steve buchanan who was the original idea behind before all ideas to bring a show about nashville it was originally going to be specifically mostly about the grand Ole opry in his in his vision um, but the grand Ole opry became a part of it to keep the grand Ole opry special and not be there all the time yeah. and that show was called nashville but anyway uh, steve was the one that uh, produced and made all our uh, concert touring happen the nashville tour um, which we did both here in the states but um, did real well over in the uk and uh we're going to be doing a nashville reunion tour in the uk awesome. in october so awesome we've been so well received there it's really really a wonderful thing to get to think that even for a little bit we're spreading the gospel of country music to to places that haven't quite uh, been exposed as much as they might so that that means the world to me if anybody started listening to country music because of a little show called nashville that just puts a grin on my face because you couldn't do better than to listen to country music that's awesome brother so uh the name of the album we don't have a title yet or i do but i don't not i'm not positive yet the first the first single out was called one good move and the next single is coming out too soon it's called a little right now and uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint of that one. There's some lyrics from that one. It's just, this is just simple country of somebody at the end of their rope that's just sort of reaching out. It says, uh, I'm a farmer praying for rain. I'm a gambler who needs an ace of spades. I'm a sailor hoping for a gust of wind. I'm a singer looking for that song. I'm a prisoner that ain't got long. I'm a dreamer waiting for my ship to come in. But lately all my roads have been running out and there ain't no silver lining in these clouds. Help me, Lord, and show me how to find the kind of faith that I once found. Because I could sure use a little right now. Oh, that's good. <laughs> brother, it's a pleasure. Thank you for giving me a little bit of your time. Oh, thank you, brother. I've enjoyed it so much. Oh, me too. Chip Eston. Oh. Cheers.